0: You know, something in our nature as humans causes us to dehumanize others when we engage in conflict. I plead with all, all of my Republican colleagues,
1: let cooler, more rational heads prevail. And whose heads would those be, Congressman Warren Davidson of Ohio?
0: Good luck.
2: Something right. No, it ain't, but it's kinda of funny. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. So I'll take it. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am
1: from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in rainy California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, am 950 ktnf we also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internet on the progressive voices channel netroots radio radio for humans nicole sandler.com radio free brooklyn workforce rising no lies radio verdant square radio detour talk and most of your favorite podcast sites blanketing planet earth i'm brad friedman you're a friendly investigative blogger journalist troublemaker muckraker All around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us once again in this now new-ish new year. Glad to have you with us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. And as we go to air, yes, we are in the middle of day two of the uh, GOP's uprising against the GOP. In the US House. That's right. It's a GOP on GOP uprising <laughs> in the House. Uh, so bizarre. As uh, they attempt to carry out what should be the easy first business of taking over the House majority, electing a speaker. But they can't do it so far on day two. It's also, by the way, day two of my ongoing uh, on going on air with the cold. Uh, So apologies for that unavoidable annoyance. I guess the question now is, which will happen sooner? I'll be rid of this cold or the Republicans will select a House Speaker Desi (laughs) Doyen.
2: It's a mystery.
1: But as the uh, Republican rebels, without any actual apparent cause, continue their dumb uprising against I'm not sure what, I'm noticing, uh, Des, that they seem to be entering the bargaining phase, not actually, you know, bargaining with each other to, you know, try to come up with a House Speaker, a consensus candidate that they can all agree on other than Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, but sort of bargaining with themselves, I mean, to try and justify what it is they are doing. I don't know if you noticed this today, but a number of those who spoke to, uh, you know, repeatedly placed the name of of a Republican challenger to Kevin McCarthy into nomination, they've noted that this is really what America wants them to do. I DC know. To do. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah. That they're sort of, you know, this is this is you know, This is they shouldn't be embarrassed by this. This is what America wants, an open, transparent debate on things that are going on in Washington. And while an argument could be made in favor of that, the problem is they're not actually debating anything here. They just keep doing the same thing over and over again. They're putting names into nomination, they're voting, and then they are not coming up with enough votes to reach the required 218 votes that would be needed for a majority to name a new House speaker so that they can actually begin the 118th U.S. Congress. They're not actually debating Anything. There's no actual debate. They nominate people. They vote. It fails. They nominate again. They vote. It fails again.
2: And what's the old saying about doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result each time?
1: It makes you a Republican?
2: (laughs) Close, but I think it's actually insanity, which is definitely where we are right now.
1: Yeah, all of these uh, members, and by the way, they are still just members-elect because they can't be actually sworn in until a House Speaker has been selected to swear them in. But they're not debating openly about any of this because it is unclear, at least to me, what the hell it is that these 20 or so GOP so-called rebels actually want, other than the fact that they don't want Kevin McCarthy to be the House Speaker, even though he has actually already promised to give them, I think, pretty much every single thing that they want. So instead, you know, they're mentioning how how great it is, what they're doing, you know, instead of talking about the fact that they got what they want, or instead of putting forward what they're actually demanding, they're just talking about how great it is, what they're doing, how much the American people really, really want this sort of debate, finally from Congress.
2: And about how broken Washington is when it's really just, you know, these 20 right-wing reactionary Republicans kind of holding up the whole process and
1: breaking everything. And yeah. breaking everything. I mean, that's not a debate. That's not a debate. It's 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 a debate. It's
2: just breaking things.
1: Yeah, if if there is a debate going on here, I have no idea what it is. I will see if my guest joining us momentarily has any better idea. He's actually here to discuss something that makes much more sense than I think than than uh, what we're seeing playing out in the House uh, to talk about, you know, something regarding the media and the polls and how they both ended up skewing the 2022 results to give us what we are sort of looking at today. We'll see if he has any insight on on all of this any insight that I'm so far failing to find in this Republican exercise in seeming futility. It seems futile, but hey, you know what? It keeps them from doing legislative damage. So there is that, at least. So as we go to air today, the House has just finished round six of trying to elect a uh, or select a House speaker with ballots four, five and six. Coming today so far after the first, second and third ballots had similar results on Tuesday, each time with the Democrats nominee. Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries receiving the vote of every single Democrat, every single unified Democrat, something that has not happened for a Democratic leader since Nancy Pelosi first became Speaker back in 2007. There seems to be no sign of uh, Democrats breaking apart in any way. Every time that there has been a ballot, now six times as we go to air, Hakeem Jeffries has received exactly 212 votes from all of the Democrats, while the Republicans have split their votes between McCarthy, who received 201 votes on ballots four, five, and six so far today, which is actually down by one vote from what he received on the third ballot on Tuesday. So things are not moving in the right direction for Kevin McCarthy, but everyone you know, is pretty much holding firm to their intransigence on the GOP side and they are getting nowhere quickly in a few slight variations on uh, the dysfunctional theme on Wednesday, uh, while New York's Hakeem Jeffries has been nominated each time by California's Pete Aguilar on the Democratic side on each ballot. I think, by the way, I think he's now the Democratic whip, the new Democratic whip, if I'm not mistaken, Aguilar. So Aguilar nominates Hakeem Jeffries every time, but the efforts of McCarthy supporters and of the rebel 20 or so, even farther right wingers, those uh, nominations have had a little bit of a nuance. Each time McCarthy is nominated, it is by someone else, as if that will make some sort of a difference. On Wednesday's ballots four, five and six, McCarthy's name was placed into nomination by Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin and then Warren Davidson of Ohio, who you heard at the top of the show, and then Kat Kamek of Florida, Uh, respectively, in those three ballots. I've never heard of, well, I heard of Mike Gallagher, but other than that, Davidson, Kamek, no idea who these people are. Don't know if it, well, apparently we do know if it'll make a difference to the vote because they nominated them, and the exact same thing happened on all three ballots. The GOP obstructionists, however, had an interesting play on Wednesday after Byron Donalds of Florida on Tuesday... The first day of this madness, after he initially had voted for McCarthy on the first two ballots, he flipped his support to the rebels on the third vote on Tuesday. So on Wednesday, he was rewarded by being made their nominee, the rebels nominee on ballots four, five and six, each time receiving no more and no less than exactly 20 votes. Now, who is Byron Donalds? Because No, I had never heard of him either before uh, Tuesday. So he's an African-American Republican, a second term member, or he will be if he's ever allowed to be sworn into this new Congress. He was nominated the first time on Wednesday to be speaker on ballot number four by Chip Roy of Texas in what seems to be a fairly transparent move to try and, you know, be able to claim that, you know, these Republicans nominated a black man for the job.
2: Yeah, it does appear to be like that.
1: So, you know, Democrats will have to help them now, right? Wrong. Uh, that said, in, uh, in 2000, this guy, Byron Donalds, actually pleaded guilty. To a felony bribery charge as part of a scheme to defraud a bank, which, by the way, seems pretty on brand these days for Republicans. I guess Uh, let's you know, let's select the guy who has already been convicted of a financial (laughs) felony to be our leader in the U.S. House. Just
2: to sort of get ahead of the game, right? So uh,
1: that's who he is in in round five. Then of the voting, he was nominated. The second time on Wednesday by Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado. You've heard of her. She won her own election just barely by over uh, 500 votes in November. And she talked about the need to listen and to work with others more closely after she lost by such a slim margin. But, of course, that was days ago. She can't be expected to remember everything, you know, days later. Rebellions can take a lot out of a gal. I don't have to tell you that, Desiree. (laughs) And then finally, after failing to select a speaker, after five rounds of voting, they did the the same exact thing again. They nominated the same exact people again in round six, this time with Byron Donalds being nominated by uh, Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry, who may well be indicted himself for his own part in supporting the January 6, 2021 insurrection and attempting to steal the 2020 presidential election. During Scott Perry's nomination speech for Byron Donalds, he ironically complained that crime is running rampant in the U.S., even as he himself may be charged with felonies and as he nominated a man who has already pleaded guilty to felony bribery to defraud a bank. So none of that helped. In the sixth round of voting, that just uh, completed just before we go to air today, the uh, Democrat Jeffries was once again the top vote getter with 212 votes. McCarthy mustered 201 votes in each round so far on Wednesday, and Donald's received just 20 votes each uh, each of the three times. There was one other change on Wednesday from Tuesday and that is that Republican uh, Victoria Sparks of Indiana she has begun to vote present in each round of voting. Uh, For now that has no effect but uh, since a majority of those present and voting is required to determine the speaker that number is is currently still 218 needed for a majority but that number could go lower if other members uh, vote like uh, sparks simply present or they abstain altogether in the days ahead. As we go to air, the House has now voted to adjourn until 8 p.m. Eastern time, Wednesday night, after which they will show up and vote some more or something else will happen. And nobody at this hour knows exactly what it is. They could adjourn. They could come up with, well, who knows what they'll come up with. Whatever it is, if it is of any note at all, or probably, even if it isn't, we will discuss it on our next broadcast. <laughs> uh, but for now, uh, this means that we can go to a break as well. We'll come back with data researcher Tom Bonier, one of the very few folks who appears to have gotten the 2020 elections right when the professional forecasters were all falsely predicting a red wave, a red tsunami that would wipe out Democrats. That didn't happen. Uh, But following a 4000 word analysis by The New York Times over the weekend headlined The Red Wave Washout, How Skewed Polls Fed a False Election Narrative, uh, an article which cites Bonner extensively as one of the few who got it right. uh, Well, we now have a better idea of what actually happened, what went wrong and how the GOP apparently, yes, even figured out how to game the polling forecasts at sites like realclearpolitics and 538.com. That's all straight ahead along with Tom's insights into the ongoing House GOP madness. I'm Brad Friedman and you are listening to the broadcast. <laughs> carefully welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com on new year's eve the new york times published a deep dive analysis of sorts of lessons learned from the 2022 midterm election results it is headlined quote the red wave washout how skewed polls fed a false election narrative Those polls may have fed a false election narrative to The New York Times and pretty much all of the other mainstream corporate media outlets, even as, well, some of us weren't really biting, including a number of independent data analysts who weren't buying it either one of whom joins us here momentarily to discuss both the Times analysis and the madness underway in the U.S. House once again today, as you may have noticed. But just to give you an idea of the thesis behind the Times, otherwise excellent if months overdue 4,000-word analysis of what actually went sideways in last year's critical midterm elections, let me share the story's lead example. The Times' Jim Rutenberg Ken Bensinger and Steve Eder report: Washington State's Democratic U.S. Senator Patty Murray had consistently won re-election by healthy margins in her three decades representing her home state. 2022 seemed no different. By midsummer, polls showed her cruising to victory over a Republican newcomer Tiffany Smiley by as much as 20 percentage points. So when a survey In late September, by the Republican-leaning Trafalgar group showed Ms. Murray clinging to a lead of just two points. Well, at first it seemed like an aberration, an outlier poll. But in October, two more Republican-leaning polls put Murray barely ahead, and a third said that the race was a dead heat. For Patty Murray who has served in the Senate since 1993. She won her previous re-election in 2016 by 18 points. As the red and blue trend lines of the closely watched Real Clear Politics average for the contest drew closer and closer together with each new Republican poll released, news organizations reported that Murray was suddenly in a fight for her political survival. Warning lights flashed in Democratic war rooms. If Ms. Murray was in trouble, the thinking in September, October, and November went, well, no Democrat was safe in 2022. Murray's own polling, on the other hand, showed her with a comfortable lead, and a nonprofit regional news site using an established local pollster had her up by 13 points. Still, given all of the uncertainty and apparent mistakes of polling over recent election cycles, Murray's campaign went on the defensive. They scuttled her usual practice of lavishing some of her war chest. She had amassed some $20 million by September of last year lavishing that on more vulnerable democratic candidates elsewhere she didn't do that instead she reaped financial help from the party's national senate committee and supportive super PACs. resources that would as a result just like her campaign's own funds this year be unavailable to other democrats around the country in arguably much tougher battles to win their u.s senate seats A similar sequence of events played out in battlegrounds nationwide. Surveys showing strength for Republicans, often from the very same partisan pollsters, set Democratic klaxons blaring in Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Colorado, according to The Times. Coupled with the political factors already favoring Republicans, including inflation and President Biden's unpopularity, the skewed polls helped feed what quickly became An inescapable political narrative, a Republican wave election was about to hit the country with hurricane force. At least it was an inescapable political narrative to some, some who had come to rely largely only upon the polling averages and their related forecasts updated with each new poll, partisan or otherwise, at places like Real Clear Politics and Nate Silver's infamous 538.com. Indeed, Washington State's Patty Murray ended up clobbering her GOP opponent in November, said to have been so close in these late partisan polls, clobbered her by nearly 15 points. The misleading polls of 2022 did not just needlessly spook some worried candidates into spending more money than they may have needed to on their own races. They also led some candidates in both parties who had a fighting chance of winning to lose out on money that could have made it possible for them to do so, as those controlling the purse strings actually believed polls that inaccurately indicated they had no chance at all. Some of those arguably negatively affected by all of this included Democrat Mandela Barnes, who ended up losing to the unpopular Republican incumbent Senator Ron Johnson up in Wisconsin by just one single point. Then there were Democrats like Tim Ryan in Ohio, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina. In the election's immediate aftermath, the Times reports the polling failures appeared to be in keeping with misfires in previous years in 2016 and 2020. But a New York Times review of the forces driving the narrative of a coming red wave, one that never came, and of that narrative's impact found new factors at play this year, traditional Nonpartisan pollsters, after years of trial and error and tweaking their methodologies, produced polls that, well, largely ended up reflecting reality. But they also conducted fewer polls than they have in the past. That paucity allowed their accurate findings to be overwhelmed by an onrush of partisan polls in key states that more readily suited the needs of the sprawling and voracious political content machine. While right wing media outlets gave over the top play to the so-called coming red wave, for example, Steve Bannon's War Room podcast predicted a GOP pickup in the House of anywhere from 50 to 100 seats. They actually flipped just nine seats. That uh, misinformation spilled over into the coverage by mainstream news organizations as well. Yes, including The New York Times who ended up amplifying the alarms being sounded about potential Democratic doom. The virtual bazaar of polls, as a top Republican strategist called it, was largely kept humming by right-leaning pollsters using opaque methodology, in some cases relying on financial support from hyperpartisan partisan groups. Other pollsters lacked experience at all, like two high school juniors in Pennsylvania who started Patriot Polling, and they quickly found their own surveys, a 16- and 17-year-old kid included on the statistical analysis website 538. as did another high school concern based at another uh, high school in Andover, Massachusetts. Shaping, shaping perceptions across the ideological spectrum, the steady flow of data predicting a red wave prompted a real-world decision-making Process that members of both parties now say could have tilted the balance of the power in Congress. Could have? Well, given the panicked response to those polls, I would say it absolutely did have an effect, though whether it ultimately helped or hurt Democrats around the nation, that's not quite as clear. At the same time, the Times goes on to note in their 4,000 word analysis that not everyone was in fact moved, much less panicked, by those late apparent changes in the polling. Folks like Simon Rosenberg of the New Democrat Network made the case on Twitter and whichever media outlets would welcome him that the polling was, in fact, misleadingly skewed. Tom Bonner of Democratic data clearinghouse TargetSmart, as the Times also points out, worried about the damage being done by overly Republican-leaning polls, particularly as the data that he was following and joining us on this program at the time to discuss during the run-up to the election, well, his data was not based on polling, but on other hard and arguably more reliable data. seemed That data seemed to counter the narrative of a so-called coming red tsunami election and, in fact, buttressed the notion that Democrats were likely to perform surprisingly well in a midterm election that would usually you know, go to the uh, out of power party, in this case, the Republicans, by huge numbers. But he and Rosenberg were a decided minority as Democrats freaked out change their campaign strategies in the final months and while actually picking up one seat in the U.S. Senate. Ultimately, they went ahead and lost their majority in the U.S. House, if only by the narrowest of margins. So what actually went sideways in all of this in 2022? What can we learn from it? And why did folks like Tom Bonner and uh, Simon Rosenberg and, yes, Even this program tried to warn folks to ignore those doom and gloom warnings of a coming red wave election that barely, if ever, trickled ashore. Joining us again today is the great Tom Bonier, CEO of Target Smart and a lecturer at Howard University. Oh, welcome back, Mr. Bonier, and Happy New Year, sir.
0: Happy New Year to you. It's great to be back.
1: So, uh, as you can tell, i got plenty to ask you about regarding this Times story, as I had initially planned. Very interesting. But first, uh, Tom, given the uh, ongoing madness this week in the House uh, and the Republicans' complete inability, it seems, to even select a speaker, so they can begin the 118th Congress. I kind of need to tap your wisdom on that for a moment. Uh, Republicans continue to hold ballot after ballot, wherein their favorite candidate, Kevin McCarthy, cannot get to 218 votes to win the speakership. So uh, first, what's your top-line response to all of this? Why is this happening, and what does it mean for both Republicans and Democrats here?
0: Yeah, you know, I I guess all I can say is it's not very surprising. Um, I don't think it's surprising to you either. I think uh, in the end, McCarthy is reaping what he has sown. And look, this is the problem with the Republican Party now. Uh, and you can use your favorite analogy, uh, you know, the, the the genie out of the bottle, the toothpaste back in the, the tube. Yep.
1: Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's not surprising. Mm. They've empowered this caucus. They've grown this caucus. They've, um, they've made space for this caucus, and now this caucus is um, defying him and preventing him from the one thing that he's wanted, apparently more than anything else. Uh, and it's hard to feel sorry for him.
1: Well uh, yeah it is I don't feel sorry for them at all they've done this to themselves but I'm still trying to figure out Tom you know what do you have any sense what it is that the so-called you know never kevins here who who seem to be growing in size what it is that they actually want I mean, what it is that McCarthy is unwilling to do for them, or is this, I'm sort of coming to see it, uh, that it's more simply about claiming a scalp, any scalp, so they can, you know, claim that they did something tangible, they smashed something or someone, uh, and somehow claim victory. That seems like the only thing left.
0: Yeah, my my best estimate is they want attention, which which is what they've always wanted, and you're right, I think they want to be able to show some amount of power and then to be able to leverage that in in future mm. legislative battles. And I, I, the problems that McCarthy is having today and this week and moving forward are going to be the same problems that McCarthy or whoever will emerge from this as Speaker, probably not McCarthy it seems, uh, we'll have for the next two years. The, mm-hmm. That's the thing. This isn't a, a, a one-off. I don't think mm. that this caucus is going to suddenly behave. Um, they they've had a, a nihilist streak from the beginning, yeah. and now they're empowered, yep. and so they will be doing what they can to shut down government. <laughs> When it comes to spending bills, mm-hmm. uh, you know this is this is just the preview. I'm afraid
1: it's it's like the one thing they're good at uh, is is shutting things down. And I got to say, you're right. I was not surprised by any of this. At least the the initial vote against McCarthy, uh, you could see that coming for weeks. I got to say though, I was actually kind of surprised, uh, at least on on day one, and and, and again uh, in the days following the number of people voting against him and the fact that they're holding together uh, over these rounds of... They're even increasing. I may have underestimated how pathetic these people actually are. Uh, Yeah, (laughs)
0: well, I I do think it's about power. I think that if they were to back off, then they would be seen as a a group who want to make a big show, get Mm -hmm. a little attention, but then eventually they'll fall in line, and then I think that would disempower them. Yep. Uh, in the future, over the next two years, so I believe it. You know, they've seen it as important to them to hold their line here. And to your point, they need to create a consequence. Mm-hmm. They need to be the ones who put someone else in there. And in the end, I, I don't think they'll care that much because, um, you know, who are they going to get as one of their own mm-hmm. in the caucus? I'm not sure who they see uh, yeah. as as one of their own and someone who they would actually. View is is viable so i imagine it will be one of these second uh, second run candidates yeah he seems to be the most favorite uh, know. you know although they've not put him to a vote yet which tells me that they are Sort of holding back as as a, a, a potential compromise at that point.
1: Scalise, yeah, it it really does seem at this point anyone but Kevin, just so they can you know claim a scalp. Uh, you're right about power and, and dominance, and if they back down now, well then they'd be showing weakness. All right, uh, as to the uh, as to the well, I was going to say much more interesting, but the, these are both kind of interesting. But the New York Times analysis of this so-called Red wave washout last year after polls were skewed, as they report, by this late wave of hard right and false uh, partisan polling that affected the polling averages. It freaked out Democrats. It resulted in money being moved around, being spent where it wasn't needed or not being spent in places where it was, uh, in, in places that it could have had, you know, it could have resulted in a larger majority for Democrats in the U.S. Senate, maybe even retaining the House. Is this a matter of republicans tom bon you're figuring out how to game the now infamous polling averages at places like 538 and real clear politics they seems like they figured out how to game pretty much everything else in the political system is that what happened here in 2022
0: yeah sim- simply yes that is what happened uh, and and it couldn't have happened without others playing along with it and empowering it but Yeah, that's what happened. Uh, A big part of this opportunity, and you mentioned this a moment ago, was uh, the void that was created by the high-quality polls. There's generally partnerships between academia and media, if not just explicitly mainstream media surveys. Mm -hmm. But in prior election cycles, we've always had far more of those polls. So there wasn't as much oxygen uh, for these right-wing red-wave pollsters to actually make a mark. But what we had was both sides of the equation were changing dramatically. As you noted, those mainstream high-quality polls uh, were slashed, far fewer of them. And at the same time, these uh, right-wing pollsters uh, increased Exponentially, mm. and so, sure, they saw the opportunity there, and they jumped in, and you know you mentioned, and the New York Times mentioned some of the bigger ones, the Trafalgars of the world, mm-hmm. um inside advantage, but there were you know maybe a dozen or more in the end, others that weren't as prolific, but you know the one thing they had in common from my perspective was they were pollsters I'd never heard of before, mm-hmm. and they all coalesced. And, you know, they were all producing very similar numbers in the same states, and they, they were successful. In the end, they were successful. You know, and were, were they successful to the point where they were able to create a red wave? No, but they were successful to the point where Republicans won some races that I don't think they would have without this
1: mm. happening. Mm. why you mentioned that the, and the times mentioned there was a lack of uh of polls from the major nonpartisan pollsters why was that why did they pull back this year do you have any any uh, understanding of that
0: yeah i think it's two things uh two factors one was cost polling has just become more expensive as mm. response rates have diminished significantly it wasn't that long ago that these gold standard pollsters could get 20% response rates, Mm -hmm. meaning call 100 people, get 20 people to take the survey. Mm -hmm. We're at a point now where you're lucky if you're getting Mm. Mm. (laughs) 1.25%. One or two people out of 100. And so it gets much more expensive to call number after number after number to get the responses you need to get a sample. So the expense... And then um, accuracy concerns. I think a lot of media outlets felt burned after issues from 2016 and 2020, and they felt like it was in some way potentially damaging their brand. And so you saw some of these media outlets just pull out and say, there are problems with polling. Mm. We don't have confidence in these numbers, so we're gonna take a step back. And those two factors combined to just create this great void, unfortunately.
1: And uh, when I ask you if this was, you know, done purposely to game the, you know, the forecasting averages, do we do we actually have evidence? Do we know? I mean, I mentioned there was, you know, those those two high school kids in Pennsylvania. Were they actually part of this scheme to put out these kind of polls? Did they know they were? uh, Do we have evidence of that yet, that they knew that they were participating in this sort of conspiracy, if you will, to game the uh, the polls? And. You know, real clear politics is kind of a right-leaning outfit. I'm not surprised at that. But did, you know, folks like five thirty eight, Nate Silver, not see this coming, not look at this and go, wait a minute, these are pollsters we've never heard of before. They're all coming in as partisan pollsters. Their numbers are, you know, outliers from the non-partisan polls. Something is wrong here. I mean, where were the gatekeepers to prevent this from happening in that sense?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest issue. But to to your first question we don't know you know there's not a smoking gun here all we mm-hmm. can do is observe the patterns observe this relative to prior elections and just note that it was entirely unprecedented this flood this coordination it points towards some level of intent but 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 i can't ascribe intent to to certainly not to everyone in there and you mm-hmm. mentioned the high school students and maybe this is just yeah. me trying to be softer on the on on them because they are kids I, I think it's great that high school kids <laughs> were doing polls. i okay. I, I, I yeah. genuinely think that I, I don't. I, I don't mean to to be dismissive of that. I think it's a cool project. Uh-huh. I think the problem was when platforms like five thirty eight, to your point, the gatekeepers uh-huh. who are trusted sources yeah. to take all of this information. It, it people. There's nothing stopping a Republican firm from putting out a poll in a race, and in fact, that's generally what happens. We all know this. campaigns often when a campaign is facing a a difficult environment they're running behind in a race and they can't make up that gap or maybe bad news comes out they'll release a biased poll that will suggest that conventional wisdom is wrong Mm -hmm. and they're actually winning in the hope that that will raise them more money and create a sense of momentum and turn things around and so those polls have always been out there not as many as we've seen this time around Uh, but 538 aggregators like them it's their job to sort through that and provide a clear sense of what all this means and they failed they entirely failed and so those high school students you know they should have 538 should have been in a position to look at that and say well this is problematic and Mm -hmm. we're not going to include this but a popular uh, refrain that we've heard over the last handful of election cycles. When a poll would come out and people looked at it and said, it looks like an outlier, they'd say, just throw it into the average. Trust the average. Is uh-huh. something you hear all the time. Yeah. And the idea is, well, okay, poll by poll, you may have outliers, you may have polls that are not going to be quite accurate, but just the brute strength of numbers, that if you have a lot of polls together, Mm -hmm. those outliers will become muted. And generally, that's worked in the past. Mm -hmm. But the problem was this cycle was different in that there was such a partisan bias in where these polls were coming from that you couldn't trust the average. And the fact is, we knew that. And that was the alarm that we were sounding on this very program and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, frankly, the response was generally dismissive at best and often mocking, including uh, from Nate Silver. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. And what he, he called, he accused uh, uh, you and, and and Stuart of smoking hopium or something yeah. like that. I think yeah. that was his famous...
0: Smoking hopium.
1: Yeah, I, because you guys were pointing out, no, the data that is not poll-related seems to show us something entirely different. And your hopium uh, sounds like it was actually pretty good hopium. Maybe I can get a bag of that myself. But it wasn't just Nate Silver. It was media outlets. What were the corporate media outlets uh, saying to you when you were pointing out uh, your, and they weren't predictions per se, but you were saying, hey, our our data, not based on polls, is showing us something entirely different based on, uh, you know, turnout data, new registration data, special election data, and so forth. What was the response from the corporate media on that?
0: You know, it's interesting um, because I, I did experience actually a pretty wide range of responses. I mean, the the, the most common response was... Not you know mocking, but mm-hmm. but certainly you know uh, the, the notion that they would have to take what I say with a grain of salt, that it's clearly partisan, and that it wasn't in line with what they were hearing. So mm-hmm. there was a amount of skepticism, and certainly what you saw in the reporting from mainstream media was tainted and sort of directed in the notion that there was going to be a red wave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there was a, there was a period of time in September where people were open to the notion that maybe the red wave wasn't happening. And then there was that one New York Times poll that came out that looked bad for Democrats, and that sort of closed the door. I will say, and I want to give credit, um, when we started reporting on, and this is when you and I first spoke Mm -hmm. um, last summer, when we started putting out analysis based on the Dobbs effect and showing women registering to vote, at a much higher rate after the Dobbs decision, and the what Supreme we saw Kansas, Court decision
1: under uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. Yeah,
0: that's right. And so what we saw in Kansas with uh, just a surge in young women voting um, mm-hmm. and 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 producing the surprise 18 point victory for the pro choice no vote there, and then the Democratic uh, victory in the special election in New York, and then in Alaska. And at that point, I will say, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that 90% of the reporters who were reaching out to me were women. Hmm. And really? those reporters I spoke with overwhelmingly were not approaching this with that air of skepticism. Um, Interesting. And, and, and uh, you know, I think we can read into that what we will, but I, 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 it's not surprising to me that women saw what happened with dogs uh-huh. and saw this reaction and understood it. Yeah. And, you know, every reporter is going to approach any, anything with, with, with skepticism in the partisan realm. But, um, you know, there was certainly that connection, and they were the ones who were writing about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it wasn't as much so from, um, from male reporters. They
1: were and, the ones who were writing about what y- your findings were and Stuart Rosenberg's findings were that this sort of countered this developing narrative that there was a red wave coming.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, in the end, you talk about this notion of, of, of the, the sort of mocking, smoking, hopium response, yeah. which was certainly common at that point, especially in the last couple of weeks of the election. The irony there is that the counterweight to that notion, you know, to to uh, uh, what we were saying, that we didn't see a red wave forming, mm-hmm. uh, was really just the polls. That was it. That's what they had. And it wasn't yeah. all the polls as you said in your intro. It was right. just... Some of the polls it was it was you know it was a majority of the polls, but when you filtered out these red wave Republican pollsters, uh, it showed a close and competitive election uh, while whereas as you have noted, the analysis that Simon and I were putting out day after day was focused on the polls to some extent, mm-hmm. but a critical view of the polls and pointing out the issues with these polls and the imbalance but also early vote and also mm-hmm. special election data and also voter registration data and contribution data and the point we were making is you really need to take all of this into account to have a full picture here and that we can't trust the polls in aggregate we can't trust 538 in real clear politics because they have been biased willingly mm-hmm. by this red wave effort so it was ironic that what we were doing was much more comprehensive and and in some ways um complex, yet the analysis was being uh, dismissed as opium, um, which which is odd.
1: Yeah, you were the ones who were dismissed. Well, let me just throw a a counter here, and I got uh, sort of two questions I want to try to fit in very quickly. Uh, The Times notes that by late October of last year, the Republican wave had surged into a so-called red tsunami A phrase uttered nearly 4,000 times that month on radio, TV, podcasts, according to a media tracking firm, a more than tenfold increase from September. References to a red tsunami then nearly doubled again in the first eight days of November, including from not just GOP outlets, but also from mainstream outlets as well. But uh, Tom Bonner, can a case be made that these skewed polls, skewed by you know this ton of last-minute partisan polls, including from the high school kids, et cetera, that that actually ended up helping Democrats? That it sort of freaked them out a bit and sort of goosed turnout for Democrats in the bargain? Can that case be made?
0: You know, some people have theorized that. I I don't buy it. I don't think it's something that we can necessarily test or prove. Mm-hmm. But my biggest concern and where I see those polls having an impact, because people have made the argument both ways, right, mm-hmm. that if people think a race is not competitive, they're not going to vote. I mean, what I'll, I'll say two things on this. I saw just in my own interactions with people generally on Twitter um, with, with rank-and-file activists was when I would share stats that produce some level of hope, talking mm-hmm. about voter registration data, that sort of thing. I would get responses and I received hundreds of these over the, over the last month of the election from people saying some version of, I was so demoralized, I didn't think we had a chance, Mm. and then I saw this, I saw this data, and I signed up for a shift to text or to call voters Uh or to canvas. And that's not to say that I'm some sort of hero, because I'm certainly not, Mm -hmm. but it's to make the point that my experience was seeing people who were demoralized by this notion of of a red wave, the notion that was inevitable and that they felt like they needed to check out, because we've all been through six years of really oppressive news cycles um, and a sense of hopelessness in many ways, And I think a lot of people felt like they couldn't go through that. And having a sense that there was hope and that these elections were winnable, I think, was important for a lot of people. But I think perhaps more quantifiable, in a sense, is the way these polls shaped media narratives. And the New York Times article touches on this a bit and I've talked with a lot of reporters including the reporters in this piece um mm-hmm. uh, about this notion and I haven't had anyone push back on 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 me on this if we believe that the re- job of a reporter is to explain what's happening and how and why is it happening if their belief from 538 real clear politics was that democrats were losing then they were going to write stories explaining how and why Democrats were losing. And the example they used in the, the article that I had mentioned to them at the time was mm-hmm. Wisconsin. You mentioned this in the intro with mm-hmm. Mandela Barnes. That was a race where when you look at what voters in Wisconsin were waking up to every day, the stories that they were reading, it was about crime and inflation. Mm-hmm. And it was an attempt to describe why Mandela Barnes, who was leading at one point in the polls, was now losing. Now, reality, as you said, he lost by a point about 25,000 votes. If the polls were accurately reflecting that, I think the stories would have been different. They would have been waking up to stories about why Ron Johnson, the incumbent senator, is in a fight for his life, why he is losing when incumbents otherwise are generally doing quite well. Um, And I think that changes how people vote to some extent. Could that have had 13,000 people switched their votes? Possibly. Uh, And I think that's where it had the impact. It's people voting based on what they believe to be true. And all they were told for the last month of this cycle was that crime and inflation were rampant and it was hurting Democrats. And I think that, in the end, became a self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent.
1: And, you know... In one sense, I feel like, uh, hey, credit to The New York Times doing this deep dive for, like I said, 4,000 words, uh, you know, looking at this, looking at where they went wrong. I'm a little bit tired of there being a need for these mea culpas from the uh, mainstream media outlets after almost every election about what we got wrong. And even in this one, they talk about, you know, this this led some candidates in both parties who had a fighting chance of winning to lose out on money that could have made it possible for them to do so. And then I actually don't think they list any Republicans who that actually happened to. But in trying to learn from this somehow moving forward, uh, what what, if anything, Last question here. What what can be learned moving forward? What should we keep in mind over the, the next two years as we get towards 2024? And with all of these mistakes that seem to keep happening year after year in both the polling and the media's coverage of it, I kind of, you know, if you like, have we reached the end of polling's usefulness altogether at this point, Tom?
0: <laughs> we'll, we'll never be able to quit polling. Really? Right, how really? much people talk about that. You know, people are too addicted to it. The reality is, you know, the, the, the real utility of polling, what we see and what we in the public interact with is the tip of the iceberg. It's the horse race. But in reality, the campaign utilization of testing messaging, of looking at which voters are moving based on different messages, mm-hmm. it still works quite well. We just have to accept that. Uh, there's a wider aperture here in terms of our notion of who's winning or losing a race and we just have to be okay with that mm-hmm. and we have to then let in these other data sources that i was mentioning mm-hmm. to give us a better yes. sense of who's going to vote and what these elections look like i think in terms of lessons and takeaways you know a broad sense and i i, I want to be clear I, I i think yes the press deserves some of the blame here but in the end one of the bigger problems was there was this red wave effort from polls, there was the media reporting on it, but Democrats were generally complicit in this in a way, too, because yes. these reporters were hearing, and we all saw these stories, and yeah. we saw cable news, where Democratic consultants were going, sometimes on the record, sometimes on background, talking about how badly Democrats were going to lose, and and talking about inflation and crime. And the reality was, that was wrong. Uh, And as Democrats, we always are harder on ourselves uh, than I think we need to be. I think it's good that we're introspective. I think it's good that we hold ourselves to a higher standard. But we also have to celebrate our victories. And this is hopefully a takeaway from this cycle is the Republican Party, under Trump's leadership and guidance, is incredibly unpopular. Mm -hmm. And Americans have rejected extremism now in four consecutive general elections. And Democrats need to build on that. We have such a wonderful opportunity. And this was this was not the best election for us by any means. It was not a perfect election. But it was a good election for Democrats. And we have a path going forward. And I think we need to be, in general, positive, more positive than we've been. And, and there's a lot of reason to believe that that is is something that the american public is reacting to and will react to more if we can if we can continue on that path and you see what's happening where we started this conversation with the republican party in disarray it's such a wonderful opportunity for democrats to uh to paint a different picture and to be a contrast to that and to to do what you know what the president is doing and in reaching across the aisle on issues like infrastructure, and actually getting things done and celebrating those accomplishments. And so I hope that's what we see. And so, yes, polling will still be there, but we have to. My hope is that over the next two years of this cycle, that the media and 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 consultants in general uh, lift up other data sources along with the polling, There's widen the aperture, and... Uh, and also just accept the fact that we don't need to predict outcomes.
2: <laughs> Correct. Uh, we're
0: not going to be able to do it with perfect accuracy. So accept the fact that we're not wizards and we don't have a crystal ball and that surprises might happen. There
1: you go. And it sounds like your party could just, you know, enjoy some more hopium at this point rather Absolutely. than a doom test-
0: pass the opium
1: around right rather than doom and gloomium you can find that opium over at target you can find tom bonier the ceo of Targetsmart, smart a democratic data solutions firm uh you can find him on the twitters still i believe at t bonier uh are, are you on uh, the mastodon or anything yet uh, tom
0: i i'm i'm there but i i you know I, all I, right It it just doesn't feel like home quite yet.
1: No, it doesn't. Uh, So you can still find him at, and you should follow him at, T. Bonior. He has a great Twitter feed as long as it lasts. Tom, always great speaking with you, my friend. I look forward to the next opportunity, sir. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you, sir. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Wait, okay, wh- hopium and what is it? You said gloomy? Uh, Doom hop- and gloomium. Doomium yeah. and gloomium. Did yeah. you just make that up? <laughs> yeah, I think I did, as a <laughs> matter of fact. Yeah. Although I do want to oh, say, yeah. um, you know, I'm I'm very glad that Tom is able to uh, look at the all other data that has helped inform and make sure that he is accurate about the public policy mm-hmm. uh, sentiment. But I think it means that people should maybe anticipate a similar gaming of the polls as the uh, right-wing House Republicans start sending out their messaging bills claiming the American people want this. They, uh, but we might have to actually be aware of some poll gaming going
1: on. Of with course. Them. Of course, that's what Republicans do rather than, you know, come up with ideas that Americans actually like and want to vote for and want to support them because of they figure out how to game the system. And that, of course, is why they turn around and blame, you know, claim that Democrats are doing it. Democrats are stealing elections. Democrats (laughs) are doing all these things. Yes, they are. Because that's what they do. They have gamed the entire system from top to bottom.
2: And it works for them, or it has uh, up well, to now for the most it, part. It
1: does. It does. If you have a House right now that has a Republican majority as you know, m- narrow as it is, the fact that they have a majority at all after just two years ago supporting an actual uprising of Congress of pretending that a presidential election was stolen... And they're rewarded two years later by a majority in the House. Of course, that comes because what do they do? They gamed the House maps. Yes. The, you know, and they game the polls to make it difficult for voters to vote. That's how they win. They game the system. So, yes, expect all of that, whether it's the polls, whether it's the elections, whether it's the maps, whether it's anything, anything but actually, you know, proposing ideas that the American people like. That's it. All right, I'm getting out then. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who support our work by hitting one of those donate buttons at Bradblog or go straight to bradblog.com donate. My thanks again to our guest today, Tom Bonior of Target Smart. You can drop me email if you like. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am the Brad Blog. Oh, and at the at the Mastodons, the BradBlog. We'll see you there. Till we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.